If you have your Bibles, turn to Jude chapter, well, Jude, just turn to Jude. <laughs> I'm so used to Jude, or book, chapter, something, so just turn to Jude. Um, Winston Churchill said, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. It's an oft-used thought that history often repeats itself. When you look back into the past, you can learn much to help you in the future. It's said the more things change, the more they stay the same. People are people. And as a result, the challenges that we face as a society, whether it's today, hundreds of years ago, or thousands of years ago, we see repeating themes. The reason is the problem is the same. We're all sinners. And while there may be new ways that sin shows itself in culture and society, whether it's new technologies or advancements in society, the root problem is the same. We're sinners. And the heart reveals itself in sinful ways. And so when we consider the reality of this idea that history often repeats itself, it's a great comfort to me that we have a source to go to that chronicles the problem, that shines a light on the problem. But more importantly, it reveals to us the victory. The victory that is ours when we know how God has conquered sin. It's the same challenges, whether we face them today or the challenges they faced in Scripture, it's just dressed up in different ways. This morning, we want to look back. We want to look back into the culture and times of Jude as he wrote this letter. And we want to look further back as Jude looks further back into the history of the Old Testament to shine a light on the fact that history often repeats itself. The more things change, the more they stay the same. This passage follows what we looked, about, looked at last week, that call to dig in and to, def- to defend the faith. It's a call to action. It's a war cry. Jude is rallying the troops of the gospel. He's calling the church to dig in, to stand firm, to defend the faith. And so last week, as a starting point, uh, I I pray that this this desire to be awakened to this great call to contend earnestly for the faith is something that you've been praying about, asking God to help you with. Because the life you live in the Lord matters. The, The days that we have that God gives us, they matter. God is calling us to action. He's calling us to the places that we are. And and I've shared this before, that in my ministry, I can't minister in the places that you can minister in, where God has placed you in your community, in your workplace, in your schools, in in the places that you rub shoulders with those who live around you and share common things. I, I don't get the chance to always minister in those ways, but you do. 
And so I pray that you see this call to dig in and to contend earnestly and to, to fight lovingly for the sake of the gospel where you are. God is calling us to guard the gospel to protect its beauty and integrity. And so today, as we continue our study, we're going to see how Jude points our attention to the past to remind us of those certain persons that crept in unnoticed. If you remember last week when we unpacked that thought that shifted Jude's attention to talk about the the glorious faith and salvation that we have, he had to pause and say there's a more urgent matter because there have been people that have crept in or as we talked about, wormed their way in to the fellowship. And he highlights them and he calls our attention to them and now he describes them. And he's saying to these people here and he's saying to us today, That what they're doing is nothing new. Like we shouldn't be surprised or caught off guard. And and I I must confess that there are times when I hear of the certain unnoticed people that have crept into the church, uh, the church of Jesus Christ. When I hear about the, the tragic falls from ministry that certain people go through and the divisions and splits that ministries sometimes undergo, I, I take a step back and say, how does this happen? I can't believe it. But God is saying, listen, this isn't anything new. People are people. Sin is sin. And we, the true church, need to dig in and and guard the faith, contend earnestly for it. The tactics, the desires, the corruption that these false teachers that Jude is pointing out are are not doing anything new. Jude points us to the past so that we can learn and protect ourselves from their destructive ways. And I would say, church, for us, I mean, this book, all of Scripture is applicable, every word of it. All Scripture is useful, as Paul told Timothy, for correction and teaching, reproof and training in righteousness. But I would say these words specifically, this book specifically, is very applicable for the world that we live in today because we know that there is a battle for the gospel. And we know that uh, there are so many contrary streams of teaching about who Jesus is. We've got to protect the gospel. It's also important to know that throughout the rest of this book, this short book that's 25 verses long, Jude is going to use many Old Testament examples. He's also going to use secondary material. What I mean by secondary material is material that wasn't found in the Old Testament itself, but sometimes is referred to as apocryphal material or secondary material. And, And people throughout church history have looked at the book of Jude and said, because he quotes a book called the book of Enoch, we can't take this book on the same level as we would take Romans or 1 Corinthians or even the Gospels. But I would say that God has preserved his word. And God spoke these words through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through Jude's pen. This is God's word. And these references to other materials is because there was other known material in the world. In antiquity, there was other resources that we can learn from. We don't hold them at the same value as the inspired word of God, but we can look into them and we can see what was going on. 
But the, what, I, what I mean by saying that is the texts that Jude is referring to in the Old Testament and the other writings are all texts that would have been very familiar to Jude's readers. When he would point back to these examples, they'd be like, oh yeah, I remember that. It's kind of like when we teach the scriptures and we go through a passage or a story and you're like, oh, I remember that from Sunday school. Or I remember that when I was in youth group. Or I remember that when my mom and dad used to sit down and, and read the uh, children's Bible with me and the story that would be on the pages. We, we're, we're taken back to those moments, these, these high water moments. And, and that's what Jude is doing. He's shining a light into these areas that would have been very familiar. Even today, we're going to see that Jude draws our attention back to the first book of the Bible and the very first chapters of Genesis. And he's reminding us and his readers that those who seek to pollute the ministry of the gospel and ruin the life that we have in the faith aren't really doing anything new. Now, I've said that many times to this point. What they're doing really isn't anything new. I hope you get that. I hope that sinks in this morning. Jude's going to share three historical examples in the verses that are before us today. And I know in the, in the bulletin, I think I had us going through verse 10. It's not going to happen. <laughs> We're going to get through verse 7 today. Um, just because the three examples are uh, three examples that we need to unpack a little bit to understand what he is saying. We'll look at the rest of the verses next week. Or in two weeks, Pastor Dustin's going to be preaching next week. Um, these examples, though, highlight the lack of authority and the sensual living that the false teachers were guilty of. And we talked about that last week when, when he called us to action. He said in verse 4, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness, and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. The ungodly persons were guilty of two things. Sensual living, that's what licentiousness is, and rejecting authority. They rejected, they forsook Jesus Christ as Master and Lord. They had no authority in their life. And they ministered for their own fleshly gain. And because I'm a pastor and I keep my eyes open and ears open to what's going on in the contemporary Christian world, it's tragic to me the choices that pastors have made to follow their flesh, to forsake the gospel, and to build ministries that are all about them, about their, their desires, and the way that the church and when I say the church, I'm talking about like big picture administratively church has fashioned ministries to support and buffet uh, these people that are not in it for the Lord Jesus Christ, but for what they want. It's a dangerous, a dangerous place to be. So let's dig in. Let's be careful. Now, one of the things that we will also want to mention is what sometimes gets lost in these illustrations that Jude is going to bring up is that God is not going to condone sin. He's not. 
He's not just, it's not just a protection for the community of faith, but because God's name is high and holy, because he is set apart, because he is to be revered, because we approach him with awe and wonder, he's going to protect his name. He's going to do what it takes to protect his name. Remember, we are called to stand firm But it's not just for us. It's not just so that we can be protected. But more importantly, we protect the name of the Lord. And when I say the name of the Lord, I'm not just referring to the names of God. I'm referring to all that he is in his character and activity. When we guard his name, we protect his holiness. When we stand firm, church, when we listen with discerning ears, when we're awakened to the false teaching that's around us. And I'm awakened to it all the time. I just ha- all I have to do is flip through my Facebook feed. And I just see it. Quotes and likes and shares of teachers that should not be teachers at all. We need to protect ourselves. We need to guard ourselves. But we need to protect the name of God. In his holiness. And one more thought. It's a very selfish thought. I really wish Jude would have pointed out our attention to three easier examples. I really wish he would have. As I was studying this week and um, meditating on the text, studying the dynamics of these examples that he brings, I just I said to myself, Lord, can can we just skip a week? Like, we'll, we'll go through it, but we're just, can you hit the fast forward button until next week? Um, the, the examples we're going to look at are difficult. There's difficulty in interpretation and in content. These are not warm and fuzzy examples, but they're also not obscure. I was talking to someone this week, and I said, yeah, this week, this is what we're going to talk about. God destroying Israel, angels that had sex with women, and Sodom and Gomorrah. It's edgy, (laughs) right? But that's what we're going to look at. And I'm like, oh, okay, so let's do it together, right? Let's just open the word and and see what God is going to say. Let me read these verses for you. We're in Jude, verses 5, 6, and 7 say this. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality, and when after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So here's what I'm going to say. You look at these verses, you might say, oh boy, this is one of those weeks where I might not leave here that encouraged or excited or, you know, like I can give you the, the, the spiritual platitude that's going to support you for the rest of the week saying, whew, I was tired when I came in. I'm excited when I leave. It's still there. You just got to see it. You got to see what God is doing in protecting his name. 
God will protect his name at all costs. And so let's learn from history so it doesn't repeat itself. Let's be awakened to the warnings and let's stand guard for the gospel. The first example is in verse 5. It takes us back to the wilderness wanderings of Israel. If you remember anything about the, the nation of Israel, they were a people that were called by God from a family. And that family had many children, and those children had many children. And, and so Genesis concludes with that family being in the nation of Egypt in a friendly relationship with Egypt. But the next book, the book of Exodus, begins with that friendly relationship being um, fractured because Pharaoh, who was in charge of the nation of Egypt, grew worrisome that this nation of, of Israelites was getting too big, and so he enslaved them. And in their slavery that went on for hundreds of years, God remembered his promise that he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he heard their cries and their slavery, and he sought to set them free. And the book of Exodus is that glorious reminder of God's deliverance through the plagues and through the miracle of uh, the, the sea parting, the, the amazing miracle of God giving the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, all of the specific instructions as he reminded these people, I am your God, you are my people, now do this. He provided for them in the wilderness, and, and you know, it wasn't easy. When Jude writes, now I desire to remind you, Though you know all things once for all, meaning they, they understood the scriptures, they, they understood what the, the, the text was saying, they, they understood the story of their history, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, and he saved them in an amazing way. Jude says, he saved them and then subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. He destroyed them. He saved them, then he destroyed them. Why? Because they didn't believe. But he brings us back to the Old Testament, and that, that just reminded me, and it should remind you, anytime you see the New Testament referring back to the Old Testament, that the Old Testament is just as important as the New Testament. Because sometimes in the church, we think of Jesus, and we think of the church, and those are New Testament concepts, and we think, well, that's where we learn everything about who we are and where we belong and what God is doing. No, the Old Testament was the foundation of the New Testament. And so when you have all these stories highlighted, it brings us back to these moments where the character of God doesn't change. And so we look back so that we can learn and see who God is. And he has a name to protect, and he will protect it at all costs. And so let's be a people of the whole council of Scripture, when, even when we struggle to understand what we're reading. Because you might read passages like we're going to look at in Numbers 14 and think, why would God do that? Why, why would God do that? Why would he save a people and then destroy them? You know, it, it might make us think that some... That, that God is just in it for sport. He's not. So in this first warning, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe, refers to that moment of a nation, right? At least 
two million people walking through a sea that parted into the wilderness peninsula, the Sinai Peninsula. And they were to make their way into the promised land, the land that, they, that God had said is yours. It's a guarantee it is yours because you're my people and this is my land and I'm giving it to you. That that nation that was in the Sinai Peninsula did not believe God. After all those amazing things and many more that Exodus highlights, they didn't believe God. And so what did God do? He destroyed that generation. So we see in Numbers 14, 11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me? Despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst. God put himself on display for the, this people. Like, do you ever read the Old Testament stories and say, if God would only do that, I would have more faith. Do you ever feel that way? God, if you would speak to me with a voice, if you would do something miraculous like providing food every day out of nowhere, if your presence and glory would shine on top of the mountain where we can't even approach it, if, God, if we could just see that, I would have more faith. Here's the problem, though. They saw that and experienced that, and they still rejected him. They did not believe. And their sin brought consequences. God had said, I want to give you this promised land, the land of Canaan. And so what did they do? They sent spies in. There was 12 spies sent in. They checked out the land. They wanted to see who was living there, the Canaanites. And do you remember what the spies reported about their, their time in spying out the land? They're like, we are but grasshoppers compared to them. They're bigger than us. They're stronger than us. There's no way. There's 12 spies. Only two gave a favorable report saying, yes, they're big, but God is bigger. And the other one said, nope. And what did the nation say? Right? popular vote 10 unfavorable reports and they were like okay we're going to listen to them so this is what happened a few verses later in numbers 14 god is speaking but as for you your corpses will fall in this wilderness your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness, and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even 40 years, and you will know my opposition. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be destroyed, and there they will die. God is speaking. The they is his people, Israel. That doesn't seem very flannel graph Sunday school material. Right? The gentle shepherd that comes along. This is a holy God. 
God judged those who did not believe by destroying them in the wilderness. He let that entire generation die rather than bringing the unbelieving apostates into the promised land. He destroyed that generation. Unbelief always results in some kind of destruction. After God had saved the people for his name, he reserves the right to destroy that people if they become guilty of certain forms of unbelief or other sins to which unbelief leads. That which happened then can also occur today to us. And you're thinking, I thought when I was saved, I'm always saved. Yes, you are. But no one is immune. Not you, certainly not me. This passage reminds us of the importance of belief and faith and our need to daily take God at his word. I want to clarify something in what Jude is saying here. It says that he subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. I, I want to take a minute and talk about this word destroyed or destruction. If you follow along, if you've been reading with us in verses 6 and 7, you see in the two other examples that those who were guilty and judged were held to an eternal judgment. So the angels were held in everlasting bonds or chains. And we see in Sodom and Gomorrah, they, they were punished not just with fire from heaven to destroy their city, but eternal fire. Eternal bonds, eternal fire, that is a forever judgment. What Jude is referring to here and the nation of Israel and numbers and the judgment is that they were destroyed physically from entering in the promised land. But there were believing Jews that did not enter into the promised land. We're talking about people that trusted God. Yes, they could not enter into the promised land and they died in the wilderness, but they entered into God's presence in belief and faith. So what do I mean by all of this? Well, 1 John 5.16 warns us, and it's really at the end of the verse, um, there is a sin leading to death. And John is writing to believers. There is a sin leading to death. It's, it's not a specific sin, but really a sin that we can commit that can lead to death. It's the same thing that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians when, when believers take the Lord's table in a lackadaisical way, and he says, that's why some of you sleep, and that means to die. So what do I mean by this? That God's people may at times face physical death as a result of some kind of sin because it's better that the Lord calls them home than to leave them on earth struggling. It's God's prerogative. Their, their salvation, if they are truly born again, is secure. They are eternally secure. But I also want to give you a, a warning for verse 5 and the application of that. Uh, Jude 5 is given to warn us. It's not given so that we can begin to judge other people. You know, when you're looking through the obituary and say, oh, they died because of this. And they died because of that. And this is what God was doing in this situation. It's not given for that reason. It's, it's given as a warning for us that God will protect his name. 
And so we're reminded of the importance of true belief, faith, and our daily need to take God at His word. And now the fun example in verse 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. The second example begins a bit challenging for us to unpack. At face value, it's like, well, that seems kind of simple. It just explains something in a general way. But there's other examples, so there's other uh, references in, in uh, the scriptures that shine a light on what Jude was referring to here. The focus shifts to angels who did not keep their own domain. These angels were judged by subverting authority, much like the false teachers that crept in. And the judgment of the great day that they are kept for is that event in time when the Lamb's book of life is open and the the world population, if their name is not found in the Lamb's book of life, at, at the end of the millennium and before eternity, if their name isn't found, they are thrown into the lake of fire, the place of eternal punishment. Well, Jude says that these angels are held in bonds of chains for a time, and then they are reserved for the eternal punishment. And here he adds that these angels didn't keep their own domain. They're going to face judgment. Now, if you just go one book back in the New Testament, or no, a few books back, to the letter of Second Peter... So go through 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and find yourself in 2nd Peter. In 2nd Peter chapter 2, this is what Peter writes. And listen to what Peter writes compared to what we just read in Jude 5, 6, and 7. In 2nd Peter 2, verse 1, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Well, that sounds familiar about those that are creeping in. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. Oh, they're licentious people. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to the destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous and soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment." Do you see the similarities in the examples that Jude uses and the examples that Peter highlights? I mean, outside of specifically mentioning Lot and the days of Noah, the examples are the same examples. So what is this example that he's referring to? Well, the the reality is that some of the angelic host failed to show proper respect for God's created boundaries, and as a result, rejected his authority. So what event is he referring to? Well, I think it's very likely the event that he is referring to is the one that is found in Genesis 6. 
You can turn there. I'm going to have the verses on the screen. But in Genesis 6, verses 1 and 2, this is what we read. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And so let's unpack this a little bit. The clear testimony of the early church from the time that Jude wrote these words until about 450 AD, so 400 years of church history, it was universally held that what Jude was referring to and what Peter was referring to is this text here in Genesis 6. There was no question. There was no debate. And we see in this passage a phrase, the sons of God. Now, you might see sons of God and think, oh, God's children. The problem is when you unpack the Hebrew uh, translation and how it's used, and you see how the, the Greek Old Testament, the, Septu, the Septuagint translates it, that in the Greek translation, it translates sons of God as angels of God. And in the Hebrew Old Testament, just so you know that they didn't make a mistake, of the five times in the Old Testament this phrase, sons of God, is used, it is always in reference to angels or spiritual beings. It's not referring to men like you and me. And so this passage highlights a time in history when angels who had fallen with Satan before the flood came to the earth and they saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. And oh, by the way, two verses later in Genesis 6-4, we read, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So, it seems that Jude is highlighting a time when, if you're going to ask me all the questions like, how did this happen? I can't answer it. But it refers to a time when fallen angels slept with human females and they had some kind of children that were mighty Now, there's some interpretations on this because we have a hard time thinking, how can this be? Jesus taught in Matthew 22, 30, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given to marriage, speaking of angels uh, like the angels in heaven, and think, well, angels can't be married and they can't have children. But remember, these angels are referring to angels in heaven. These were angels that fell. And so some of the interpretations could be that it only referred to the the godly line of Seth, the sons of God, who slept with the carnal uh, women of the world. But that's a weak interpretation. There's not enough support in the text to to, uh, support that view. There's also a view that says these fallen angels demonically possessed people, and they had sex with females. Or you can just take it for what the text says. And they, 
abandoned the authority that God gave them, did this thing, and they were judged. And when, when Peter writes in Second Peter that they were judged for hell, that's the word Tartarus. It's a place of fire and punishment, and that's where they were immediately judged too. So we've unpacked all of that uncomfortable uh, application and interpretation of the text. Here is what I want you to see, though. This is why Jude writes this. Uh, Whenever we find ourselves succumbing to the temptations to live autonomously, to do as we please, to reject authority, to remove any notion of proper place or position, we are waging war against heaven and are in danger of becoming subjects of judgment. However that sin occurred in Genesis 6, we know enough just to know, however it happened, okay. But what we do know is they were judged by God because they rejected authority. And so we cannot think lightly of apostasy in any form. The evil men of whom Jude writes, who have crept in by stealth, are pre-written into their condemnation. Like the angels, they knew and turned away from the truth of God and the place God had purposed they should occupy. And they are being judged as such. They are awaiting under eternal bonds, chains of their end-time judgment. And then we have one last example. Genesis 19 and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Here are the complete cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. There was like five cities in that region that were judged by God immediately for their immorality. In verse 7, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, since they in the same way as these exhibited or indulged in gross immorality went after strange flesh. If you remember anything about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it picks up in Genesis 18 with Abraham who was living in the promised land and he had a nephew, Lot, who lived in the southeast of the promised land, like right at the edge of the promised land in this area of five cities that were known for their immoral behavior. And in Genesis 18, God comes to him and says, Abe, I'm going to destroy the cities. And at the end of Genesis 18, we have the first example of intercessory prayer in the scriptures as Abraham pleads with God and says, please don't. He knows who's living there. And and you know in Genesis 18, God says, you know, if I find this many righteous people, I will spare the city. And if I find this many righteous people, I will spare the city. And it all whittles down. So what does God do as a way of hearing Abraham's heart in Genesis 19? In Genesis 19, 1, it says that two angels went to Sodom and Gomorrah. And on the city gate, we see that Lot is sitting there. And and the men of, of Sodom are in this area. And they see these two men because when angels came to the earth, they took the appearance of men. And Genesis 19 reveals to us that the men of the city, young and old, and it also says from everywhere in the city came, and they wanted to get to know these guys. I know there are kids here, so I want to be careful how we explain these things, but they wanted to get to know them in the married sense. And so they came, Lot saw this, and he says, hey, come with me to my house. And he knows this is a decrepit place. I don't know why Lot stayed there. I really don't. But he took, him, took these two men into his home to protect them. And the city came knocking on the door. And there's a mob forming. 
And these men from the city says, we want to have relations with these men. And when Jude writes that they went after strange flesh, that phrase strange flesh in the Greek refers to flesh that is not from man. I, uh, it's, I mean, this is strange kind of stuff. So, what did the angels do? They say it a lot. We got this. They walked right out of his house and said to him and his family, you need to come with us. And the two angels led Lot and his family out of the city. And what did they say? Don't turn back and look. Don't turn back. And fire from heaven came down onto this city and destroyed the whole, like those five cities to the ground, raised it to the ground. Everyone died. They were blotted off of the face of the earth due to their immorality. And then Lot's wife turned around and she just vanished into a pillar of salt like that. So, Jude says, remember Sodom. He's writing to believers who were worrying about false teachers coming in. These false teachers were engaging in licentious behavior. It was about them and their desires and what they wanted when they wanted it. I've read the account of people that were in leadership in churches just in my lifetime and the tragic falls that they've made and some of the, the things that they would ask people to do sickens me. It's, it's terrible. Jude says, be careful. God did not tolerate this kind of behavior in Genesis 19. He doesn't condone it in Jude's day, and he certainly doesn't today. And thank God he does not deal with everyone as he's dealt with Israel, the angels, and Sodom. For those who repent and return to him, you can find healing and rest and forgiveness. For those who are blinded by their sin and hardened to the message to repent, they are judged by God and will spend eternity in fiery punishment. And so as we think about these examples, what's the takeaway for us? Well, these examples from the past are are to call us to wake up, be alert, be watchful, and protect ourselves from the deceitful, prideful, fleshly attacks attacks of the uh, false teachers that are all about themselves. Church, take heart. God will protect his church, and he will protect his name. Now, I'm reminded of the warning and blessing that Jesus promises to the church in Philadelphia in Revelation 3.11. If you remember in Revelation, this letter was to be passed around to seven churches. And to the church in Philadelphia in Revelation 3, this is what Jesus says, I am coming quickly Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. Church, dig in, contend earnestly for the faith, and know that even when it seems difficult and impossible, Jesus is promising to come quickly. And when he returns, you will receive a crown, a reward for your faithfulness in him. And the joy of that 
is not that we will have, like, some guys collect hats, right, and they have hat racks. It's not like we're going to have crown racks. (laughs) We take all those crowns that Jesus gives us, and we just give them right back to him. And we praise him for his faithfulness.